This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. The title of this episode is Heretics, Part 7, Imagery. One of the most interesting moments in church history comes in the conflict over the use of images in worship. It's born of the reality that Christianity has its roots in Judaism, but had vast appeal among pagan Gentiles. During the time of the kings of Judah and Israel, the Jews struggled with their call by God to abstain from idolatry. Indeed, a premier hallmark of religious revival under what are called the good kings was often marked by a systematic dismantling of idolatry across the land. King Josiah's campaign to eradicate idolatry in pagan high places after the reign of his grandfather Manasseh is a prime example. But ultimately, these revivals weren't able to stem the tide. Idols in high places went up as fast as they were torn down. So as warned by God, both Israel and Judah were carried away into captivity by foreign conquerors. Carted off to Babylon, which was idolatry central, the Jewish exiles came to loathe idols as well as to lament the tendency of their souls to turn to them. Babylon seemed to be a kind of aversion therapy for the Jews. You want idols? Okay, have them aplenty. And there in Babylon, Israel was seemingly cured of idolatry. They never again struggled with it. On the contrary, they returned from exile with an almost allergic reaction to anything that even hinted at idolatry. So much so that Jews were regarded as strange by their pagan neighbors, not just because they believed in a single all-powerful God, but that they utterly refused to give him any kind of imagery and physical representation. Some pagans wondered if, in fact, Jews were atheists because of their fierce reduction of the gods and goddesses to a single deity who refused to be represented by an image. And, of course, the early Christians were Jews who understood their faith not as something new, but as something very old that had simply been moved along by God into the fulfillment he'd always pointed it towards. Jesus was the fulfillment of what God had promised the first Jew, Abraham, all the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 12. It was through Jesus that all nations would be blessed. Fulfilling God's promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, Jesus was the seed of the woman who crushed Satan's head and affected humanity's salvation. The gospel quickly jumped the boundary between Jews and Gentiles. It turns out that the Greco-Roman world of the first century was ripe for some much-needed good news. People were weary of threadbare paganism with its pantheon of fickle gods and bitter goddesses. They were burned out on the fatalism of Greek philosophy that locked them in a hopeless cage. The gospel offered an entirely different way of looking at the world and life. It rewrote people's ideas of God and offered an intimate and eternal love relationship with him that infused them with boundless hope and joy. It filled life with meaning and purpose. Once pagan Gentiles began coming to faith in ever larger numbers, the church had to figure out what to do with them. The New Testament book of Acts records an account of the Jewish leadership in the church of Jerusalem wrestling with how to cope with all these Gentile converts. They didn't deal with the issue of images then, but they'd have to later, because it was inevitable that image-hating Jews and image-loving Gentiles would come to a loggerheads over the role of images in the practice of the faith. 
Early on, Gentile converts to the faith deferred to their elder Jewish brothers to define for them what to believe and how to conduct themselves. This included the use of images in worship. But pagans regarded opposition to the worship of images as irreligious, and so the rumor began that Christians were atheists. As more and more Gentiles came into the faith and took on leadership in the church, some of the old strictures began to fall by the wayside. From the 3rd to the 7th century, a change in attitude towards imagery took place. In the 3rd century, the theologian Origen slammed the use of images in worship. But by the 7th century, images had become an indispensable part of religious life. The reasons and chronology for this sea change regarding images is obscured by a glaring lack of record. Like the transition from adult to infant baptism, it's something that took place seemingly without much controversy or debate, at least that we have a record of. We don't become aware of the importance of images in worship until there was a major controversy over them. It's almost as though a significant portion of the church woke up one day and said, wait, where'd all these images come from and why are people worshiping them? This has to stop. Now, of course, that's way overstating it, but as far as the record is concerned, that's pretty much the way it appears. We don't really see much about the ubiquity of images in worship until there was a movement to banish them in the 8th and 9th centuries in what's called the iconoclast controversy. That controversy between image haters and lovers stirred up fierce passions and is well documented. It concluded with the establishing of Eastern Orthodoxy as it is practiced today, where images in the form of icons play a central role in worship. With the arrival of Islam in the 7th century, the face of the Mediterranean world changed dramatically. In short order, vast regions that had looked to the cross now looked to the crescent moon. One-time great centers of Christianity in Syria and Egypt became Muslim. But Islam's relentless march into Europe was stalled in a four-year-long siege of Constantinople and in southern France by Charles Martel at the Battle of Tours in 732. Until the 8th century, though Rome was the sentimental capital of the Roman Empire, with the Pope being its theological center, the far more populous East was the de facto center of Christianity. With Islam's conquest of the Middle East and North Africa, Christianity's center shifted westward into Europe, leaving Constantinople, an increasingly isolated island in a Muslim sea. Deprived of its once vaunted status and vast resources once supplied by the East, the church in Constantinople went into decline. It was unable to answer the challenge of the now-dominant Islam that proved to be an effective adversary to the moribund faith that the church had fallen to. It turns out Islam was nothing like the mishmash of frayed paganism that Christianity had had to contend with in its early centuries. Islam came to regard Christianity as degenerate and polytheistic in much the same way that the Christians had considered paganism. Church leaders realized they needed to turn things around, and so a new generation of theologians and leaders emerged to take on the challenge. Leo III came to Constantinople's throne in 717 during the Second Muslim Siege. He attributed the Arab presence and pressure on the city to divine displeasure. The solution was a thorough round of repentance, a systematic purification of both church and state. Leo III established what's known as the Assyrian Dynasty after a 22-year period of near anarchy in Constantinople that saw six different emperors seize the throne. 
the Assyrians ruled for the rest of the 8th century, repeatedly rescuing the capital and what was left of the Christian East from the ongoing menace of the Arabs and a new threat by the pagan Bulgars. Even more thoroughly than Justinian the Great had, Leo reformed the law code, seeking to harmonize it with the Christian faith. When Leo III came to the throne in 717, the Muslims then launched a major campaign to take Constantinople. In midsummer, an Arab army laid siege around the walls on the land side, and then an Arab fleet arrived a month later to seal off the flow of supplies by water. But the Arab navy was hammered by strong winds and imperial cutters employing a new weapon known as Greek fire. Dysentery, the perennial enemy of siege forces, as well as some other sicknesses, forced the Arabs withdraw a year later. While the army was able to march away, nearly the entire Arab fleet was sunk by a fierce storm. The Christians attributed all of this to divine intervention. And with the people of Constantinople thankful to God, well, Leo thought it was a good time to launch a reform of the church, especially in regard to something that he assumed was obvious to all godly folk, the use of images in worship. Well, Leo couldn't have misread the attitudes of his public more. As I mentioned, the early church theologian Origen was vehemently opposed to the use of images in worship based on a clear reading of the second commandment. The little that we know about the eventual use of images began with the inclusion of relics. In Acts chapter 19, we read an interesting little story about how some of the Apostle Paul's clothing was used to affect healing. Based on that, a theology was derived that used the remains and the possessions of past saints as touch points of devotion. And, of course, a relic needed to be kept somewhere, so a shrine was built around it, and then the shrine needed to be protected, and so a church was built around the shrine. Both church and shrine were then decorated with images pointing to the relic and the saint that the relic came from. But, of course, the use of symbols and simple iconography started very early in Christian tradition. Who doesn't know today that the fish became a secret symbol that Christians used to identify themselves to one another in the midst of persecution? The catacombs of Rome are rich with imagery depicting the faith of those interred there. The anchor, the ship, and the shepherd are all early images that Christians used to mark their faith. A lingering reluctance from Judaism to cast Jesus in the form of a man saw him instead depicted as the Lamb of God. It wasn't until the very end of the 7th century that a church council in Constantinople decreed that Christ should be portrayed in his human form rather than as a lamb or some other symbol. While both Jews and Gentile converts agreed that God in his essence as deity should not be represented by an image, Jesus Christ was God become man. Some argue that just as God became man, taking on human flesh so that people could see, hear, and touch him, so it wasn't just permissible to make images representing him, it was necessary. Spurring the production of these images were the discovery, so-called, of manuscripts that gave a description of Jesus, enabling artists to create a portrait. Wild reports of these portraits' miraculous completion at the hands of an angel while the artist slept were recorded. Such not-made-by-hand images were then given credit for affecting healings and miracles. When Constantinople was attacked by the Avars in 626, the Constantinopolitan Patriarch of Sergius had icons of Mary painted on the city gates and walls for protection. At the dawn of the 8th century, images were in wide use in the worship of the Eastern Church. 
the West used them primarily as instructional aids, but their coin as aids in worship was growing. But that's not to say that their use hadn't been a point of debate, minor as it may have been. Beginning in the 5th century, there are a handful of protests by church leaders in both the East and the West. In 599, Bishop Serenus of Marseille was appalled by the cult that had sprung up around the images in his diocese. He ordered their destruction. Pope Gregory I told him that it was right to resist the adoration of images, but instead of destroying them, he should use them as aids to instruct the illiterate. Our first record of government action against images was a decree not by a Christian ruler, but by a Muslim. In 723, Caliph Yazid II ordered the destruction of all images, and not just in churches, but in houses as well. It seems this ban had been secured by a Palestinian Jew's promise that such a command would yield long life for the Caliph. Turned out to be a hollow promise since Yazid died the next year. But that becomes a frequent charge made by Christians at that time, that Jews urged Muslim rulers to interfere with Christian worship as a kind of get-back for the centuries that Christians had troubled the Jews. The Quran doesn't prohibit images per se, only when they're turned into objects of worship, a.k.a. idols. The first caliphs had decorated their palaces with mosaics in the Byzantine style and had used Roman coins that bore the effigy of the emperor or of Christ. But it was at this time that the Arabs began to reject all images, not merely those used in worship. As far as Christian rulers, it was Leo III, following the successful breaking of the second siege by the Arabs, who installed reforms that moved to eradicate the use of images in worship. The patriarch of Constantinople at that time was Germanus. He pushed back on the initial order, but only tepidly. He, he didn't really want to take on the emperor. Besides, many of the local bishops of Asia Minor were all for a suppression of images. In 720, Leo ordered that all coins be minted not with the bust of Christ as had been traditional, but rather with the head of his son and co-emperor Constantine V. A little bit later, even that was removed and a simple cross was used. Leo's zeal increased dramatically when a volcano erupted. He took it as a sign of God's anger at the lingering presence of idolatry. Leo personally took a hand in demolishing a bronze image of Christ their tradition had assigned to the agency of no one less than Constantine the Great. In 730, Leo replaced Patriarch Germanus, who had been less than enthusiastic about Leo's war on religious imagery. The imperial chancellor Anastasius was made the new patriarch. In the meantime, John of Damascus, who was the most eminent Orthodox theologian since the Cappadocian Fathers, penned a defense of images from his refuge in now Arab-ruled Palestine. At this point in our story, we're going to switch from referring to religious imagery as images to their more accurate term, icons. Since we talked about what an icon is in season one, we're going to summarize by simply saying that an icon isn't considered by those that make them as being painted. They are written. Artists who produce them attend extensive training, and there are set rules for their production. They're deemed to be a means by which God's grace flows to those that use them in worship. And they aren't worshipped per se. They're venerated as aids in worship and to worship. Those opposed to the use of icons are called iconoclasts or icon breakers. Supporters of icons are iconoduals, icon servants. 
The aforementioned Constantine V was named co-emperor by his father in 720. He reigned as sole emperor from 741 to 75. He was even more opposed to icons than his father. A number of theological arguments were developed by the iconoclasts, mostly relating to portrayals of Christ. They said that since his human nature can't be separated from his divine nature, any attempt to portray him was an attempt to portray God, which is forbidden by the second commandment. A similar line of reasoning was used with icons of saints who'd been raised into the heavens. Icons were labeled by the boogeyman of being Nestorian. The only safe image that iconoclasts allowed was the cross. Emperor Constantine himself wrote an iconoclast treatise, which is lost to us, but which was heavily cited by others. He argued that while Christ's human nature may indeed be represented by an image, his divine nature can't. So all portrayals would end up separating the natures and therefore be heretical. Constantine V's position is called by some historians Christian primitivism, and he would have caused no problems in his thinking among Christians prior to the conversion of his namesake, Constantine the Great. He rejected the intercession of the saints, a practice that was unknown among early Christians. In 754, Constantine V held what he called the Seventh Ecumenical Council, a distinction denied by both Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism today. Neither the Pope nor the patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, who were by that time under Arab rule, attended the council. The Patriarchate of Constantinople at that time was vacant. That council lasted seven months, and the record of its actions has been lost, all except its final decision regarding icons. The veneration of icons, that is their use in worship, was forbidden. So too was their destruction. A new iconoclast patriarch was seated in Constantinople, while the deposed Germanus, a bishop in Cyprus, and John of Damascus were all declared heretics. Constantine V didn't immediately treat iconoduls as hated heretics. Threats from Islam obliged him to preserve internal peace for as long as he could. But when the vast majority of monks became increasingly agitated iconoduls, monasticism came under imperial scorn. In 761, two iconodule monks were executed for speaking out against the emperor. That action seems to have crossed a line in Constantine's mind that saw him then proceed to ramp up persecution of those calling for a reinstitution of icons. The iconoclast controversy, as it is officially called, was the first period of persecution in church history to be based on something other than a dispute concerning doctrinal fundamentals. Although to those caught up in it, well, it certainly seemed fundamental to them. Hey, when blood is being spilled, people tend to think it's pretty fundamental. Anything that trumps the urge to survival is going to have a tendency to do that. We're allowed the leisure of saying that this was a controversy over non-essentials only because we're so far removed from its bite. For the first time, Christians executed Christians for religious reasons. When the main force of lingering iconodule support was found in monasteries and among monks, an imperial military commander at Ephesus named Michael Lacanadracon decided to take matters into his own hands. He may have felt that he was only implementing what the emperor wanted to, but was restrained by politics from doing. So, in 770, he gathered all of the monks and nuns that he could find and ordered them to marry. Those who refused were blinded and exiled to the island of Cyprus. 
he raised monasteries and those churches that had been so filled with iconography, it was easier just to level them than to clean them out. The military's participation in this may have been partly fueled by their frustration at being handed one defeat after another by the Muslims. But they were also furious at the monasteries and monks who drained much needed resources from the war effort and robbed the army of much needed manpower. As Lacanna Dracon assumed, Constantine V expressed his appreciation for his brutal and bloody campaign. When Constantine died in 775, the throne passed to his son, Leo IV, known as the Khazar, so named because his mother was a Khazar princess named Irene, which is a whole other fascinating tale. Influenced by his wife, also named Irene, who later played a gruesome role in Byzantine history, Leo abandoned the repressive iconoclast policies of his father. Leo named his six-year-old son Constantine VI co-emperor shortly after his own ascent. When he died only five years into his reign, the ten-year-old became sole emperor, except for that interesting mother of his who became the real power at court. Now, Irene had already backed down the iconoclastic policy of the imperial government during her husband's reign. With him out of the way, she moved quickly to put an end to iconoclasm altogether. The iconoclastic patriarch Paul was forced to abdicate, allowing Irene's secretary, Tarazias, to be elected to the post. A new council was called in 786 to restore the veneration of icons. It's called the Seventh Ecumenical Council, even though that's what Constantine V had called his 32 years before. The new council was opposed by large numbers of the military that were still beholden to Constantine V. Irene then replaced iconoclast units with loyal troops from Thrace and reconvened the council in Nicaea. The veneration of images was declared orthodox, iconoclasts who recanted were forgiven and restored, despite the hostility of monks who wanted some serious payback. The council managed to get around the charge of idolatry by saying that the veneration shown to images was to be understood as applying to the saints depicted, not the image itself. Worship, it was said, was reserved for God alone. When Constantine VI reached maturity, his power-hungry mom refused to step down. In the ensuing conflict, the ferocious iconoclastic general, Michael Lacanodracon, took the son's part. Irene was able to resist at first, but when Asian troops threw in with Constantine, he prevailed and was proclaimed sole ruler in 790. It seems that Irene's apple didn't fall far from her tree and her son. He merged cowardice with cruelty and lost the support of his followers. In a shocking moment of scandal, he set aside his wife of seven years to marry his mistress. That inflamed the hatred of the monks who went to Irene to give her their support. So she was able to return and take the throne in August of 797. Constantine was then blinded, a deformity that by Byzantine law prohibited him from ever being ruler again. Talk about being a bad mom. Way to go, Irene. Her cruelty may have done away with her son, but it provoked a coup that replaced her with Nicephorus I in 802. He then died in battle nine years later to be succeeded by the inept Michael I Ragambe. Barely two years later, Michael was deposed by another Leo, this time Leo V, who sought to restore the old iconoclast policies of his namesake. He convened yet another council at Constantinople in 815 to once more do away with icons. But Leo V didn't have any popular support and was murdered 
by the supporters of the next emperor, Michael II. This guy was a moderate iconoclast. That is, while advocating a theological position opposed to icons, he refused to use imperial force to make people stop their use. He hired an outstanding iconoclast scholar named John the Grammarian as tutor for his son and successor, Theophilus, under whom iconoclasm enjoyed its last gasp. In 837, Tudor John was made Constantinople's patriarch. An energetic repression of iconoduls once again began with a special focus on those pesky, icon-loving monks. But by that time, iconoclasm had lost its popular following, and the movement ended with the death of Theophilus in 842. He was succeeded by his son, Michael III, under the regency of his widow, Theodora, who immediately set about restoring the use of icons. John the Grammarian was deposed, and in 843, a synod officially reinstalled the veneration of images. The brief revival of iconoclasm that ended with the so-called triumph of orthodoxy in March of 843 produced what we know today as Eastern Orthodoxy, the Church of the Seven Councils. From the perspective of Eastern churches, the Council of Nicaea in 787 was the seventh and last ecumenical council. The councils that Rome convened and labeled as ecumenical, the East regards as only regional synods. Later events would drive a wedge between the two churches that up to this point had been one. 